This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Dr. Irina Crook is back at work this morning at Kaiser Moanalua Hospital. She spent the last month helping people fleeing the violence in Ukraine. Her roots are in that country. We spoke with her yesterday as Russia marked Victory Day, a show of military strength. Many feared President Putin would intensify his attack on Ukraine. Dr. Crook had worked as a medical volunteer along the Polish border, and her son and daughter were assisting at various refugee camps, feeding families. She returned to Honolulu this Mother's Day weekend, but her son stayed behind, and she worried for his safety. So it is a set-up volunteer camp with multiple international organizations and UNICEF and United States and Red Cross and Savers Sun Frontier, and the mission is to assist people who cross in the border. And I wouldn't call it as a regular refugee camp. Uh, from my tent, I could see we were, I guess, one of the organization I was with, one of the first on the scenes. I could see people cross. And then after they spent seven, eight hours in the freezing, then freezing weather, uh, they may need some medical assistance, spend the night if it's late. Uh, there was hot tea, coffee, and hot meals, round clock, uh, stations to charge the phones, uh, 20 gigabytes SIM cards, and people from all over the world. I literally felt like I was in United Nations. I mean, I had French nurse, Italian and French physicians, Israeli physicians, German paramedics, uh, people who volunteered from all kinds, uh, from all states of United United States with and without connections to Ukraine. And languages spoken where, I mean, I knew about six and I used all of them. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So that skill certainly uh, uh, was in good use uh, in this area. Um, gosh, I, but you must be just relieved. People were worried that President Putin was going to use this day to intensify the bombing. I grew up in former Soviet Union, and I grew up, uh, we celebrated World War II Victory Day with a big parade. It was my grandfather was a veteran who finished fights in Berlin. And it was a big, big holiday, uh, and it is unimaginable. It is tainted now for me uh, that Putin would use it in such a way. I am not sure Putin is going to do uh, what is he going to do, and it's far from over. And being in on the ground there, I saw you withdrew from the regular news, and you kind of see them through the prism of being there. For example, when it was the rail station and Kramatorsk was bombed, Two days later, we start having shrapnel wounds, and uh, people after that event showed up uh, in our camp in Meduka. And um, um, you try not to see the news just because it's just uh, terrifying. But the war is not over. 12 million people are now displaced. 5.7 left Ukraine. Uh, The rest displaced internally. And I feel like it's a calm before the storm. I am relieved today that he did not start huge uh, bombing and um, on the borders where supplies are coming from. Um, but certainly, until there is peace, there is very hard to, you know, sleep well and think about it. It's not over. This was a real family affair uh, for you. You said your son yes. is there, your daughter was there. Um, 
do they live here in Hawaii? Do they live abroad? So Marian uh, was a student in Bailua High School, but he is now in Nashville and he is a musician. My daughter graduated uh, from UC Texas and she's working in San Diego. She is a researcher. But I do have family. My mom and sister, they're from Kiev. I'm, I grew up in Kiev. So my mom and sister were displaced by the war. And when I came for that mission, I uh, situated them temporarily in Nice, France with a friend. And we kind of, they don't want to go too far. They hoping to return. But yes, to me, this is true family affair. I'm sure, though, that you are relieved that your mother is in a safe place. My mom and sister are. They were in disbelief. They refused to leave. When the offensive started, I should have convinced them to, right day before they moved to Western Ukraine, and then, um, then they eventually crossed the border, and I, I took them to the safe uh, grounds where a friend forced them for now. But yes, I'm certainly relieved. And um, Ukrainian people are very resilient, and it was a lot of stories on the border, people displaced, and then accepting families, families who host them. Uh, Europe and the world has been very generous to Ukrainians, I want to say that. We felt... Um, that it was a warm welcome, starting from the border, um, that people can come in and there is somebody takes care that they warm, give them food, uh, make sure that they could take a train or a bus. Przemysl uh, had buses and trains go to all all uh, corners of Europe for free, and people could pick their destination if they had somebody to host them, or if not, they would be. Uh, going into Tesco, which is a big uh, formal mall, which hosts, uh, that is a real refugee camp, which hosts people who are waiting to get acceptance in different countries. But I feel like the world just welcomed Ukrainians with open arms. I can only imagine that this must be so surreal for you, you know, coming back home here to Hawaii, you know, being in those conditions there and seeing the people in such distress because they're having to flee and get to a safe place. Uh, but, you know, I also worry because, you know, we're not through with this pandemic. Uh, did you see any COVID cases? I mean, how is that all being handled? I was thinking about it, but we we did not see many respiratory illnesses, despite that being uh, during the cold. Imagine people would stand on the cold. It was We had uh, one little box. In, uh, in the tent, which was medical tent, was staffed and had all this medications by group and antihypertensive, antianginal. And I took a picture. It was a COVID box. And the COVID box had two tests and a just normal surgical mask. And that's how it was. COVID concern was there before I left. I have not actually seen any cases there, and I don't know why. Uh, and I haven't treated many pneumonias. I mean, the sniffles were uh, the worst of it. And we did not test many people simply because we did not have any way to influence the outcome. Several organizations set up initial receiving tents, and it was that uh, people who crossed the border would immediately see medical tents for medical attention or tents which will host them, it's usually overnight. Uh, there were volunteers helping them as they were crossing the border to take their luggage and directing them toward their different needs. Some of them were asking, there were where the buses were to go to station in Pramashul, which was about eight miles, which had ways to arrange free transportation 
everywhere they wanted to go and needed to go in Europe and actually think where they wanted to go, we had a bigger accommodation. So the tents on the border were only set up to host people temporarily and help them to get warm and help them to kind of get their bearings again. There were two or three medical tents which were set up as a medical aid station where immediately volunteers directed them to hot food stations and providing ways to charge their phones and things like that. We didn't have a running water. We had bottled water and we had a porta potties there. So yes, there is a hygiene thing. For example, you can't really treat gastroenteritis with this. Um, there were paramedics. Uh, local facilities were available when we needed them. We also had hospital type of bus, which had six beds and was equipped pretty well with monitors and EKG and ventilators. And we did not have to use much of that. And is there anything you want to share with our listeners, you know, just coming back from this intense experience? I would like to share that in the war, you sort of realize you don't have tomorrow, you don't take tomorrow for granted. So if you uh, have anything that you wanted to do uh, with your lifestyle and beliefs and your family, um, you know, there is really no guaranteed tomorrow. So a lot of people I talk to were grateful for today. And they were saying, if you want to talk to your mom or your brother and your sister, um, don't don't put it out for tomorrow because you won't you might not have that day. And I also want to share that the peace is absolutely precious, and I hope we will have this. And I also would like to hope that uh, people will continue to support Ukraine because this tragedy is going to go on even if the war is over tomorrow. There is millions of people displaced. And what I saw is this human situation when suddenly your life is completely uprooted and you don't have the home you had yesterday and you don't have a job and don't have a bank account and you don't know where your meal is coming from. And this is striking uh, how much just the hot meal or uh, just giving somebody uh, hygiene uh, products and clothes and new bag to replace the one which is broken can do to uplift the human spirit. And the need is ongoing. And what I'm afraid of that this war becomes another kind of background news. And I don't want that to happen. This is why I'm doing the interviews. I just want to tell people that although Hawaii is very far on the opposite part of the world, but Ukrainians are feeling the warmth and feeling the aloha and the warm heart. And if you keep thinking about Ukraine and donate what you can, we really appreciate that. Well, we thank you for talking with us, and I'll keep my fingers crossed then that your son returns back home safely as well. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Arena Crook, a physician at Kaiser Permanente Hawaii, who volunteered at a camp on the Polish border for the last month with a group called Rescuers Without Borders. Dr. Crook just returned home to the islands this weekend. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org.
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove, author of The Roots of Consciousness. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the survival of human consciousness after permanent bodily death. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual info session for the Distance Executive MBA and Master of HR is May 19th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. The Honolulu City Council is preparing to take up the much-anticipated rail recovery plan this month. Updated details about ridership were released at a recent heart meeting. HPR's Casey Harlow joins us to talk about some of these issues. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, uh, so the uh, special budget committee for what the Honolulu City Council is happening uh, right now, uh, they'll be talking about the city's obvious, the executive budget, the operating budget, and also the heart budget. So I'm sure... uh, the Heart uh, finan- uh, Recovery Plan will also be discussed at this uh, meeting today. But this recovery plan uh, was approved by the Heart Board last Friday, 178-page document uh, outlining basically Mayor Blangiardi's um, vision for the project to end 1.25 miles short of Ala Moana Center. Uh, basically, the recovery plan just outlines the finances of it, the renewed plan, uh, and uh, also, some changes that happened within the last couple of years because the last uh, fi- recovery plan was released in 2018. There was a supplementary plan that came out in 2019. And so this kind of just reflects uh, everything that's happened within the last few years. Uh, yeah, a changing. lot has happened. <laughs> a lot has happened, right. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, which had an impact on the tax revenues, which uh, the rail project is so reliant on. Uh, the city's TAT uh, tax, which uh, portion of that will be allocated to HART, uh, and also new management. Uh, Lori Kahikina uh, emphasized that this is a big deal and uh, some of the fixes that have been made and the things that have been done uh, under her watch uh, as an interim executive director and now the uh, executive director of HART. Um, There was also discussion uh, at last week's board meeting regarding ridership, and how exactly that what that will be impacted because it's not going to Ala Moana. And uh, also with the deferral of the Pearl Highlands parking garage, which was a big hub, supposed, supposed to be a big hub uh, along the rail line because that was where uh, central Oahu residents can go and park and ride, basically. Uh, Roger Morton, who's the Department of Transportation Services uh, director, uh, because the city will ultimately maintain the operation and maintenance of the rail project once the project is completed. He basically gave updated projections last week uh, of like how the ridership will be affected. And he says it'll go from roughly 100,000 riders to 84,000, and most of that will be in town. The absolute number does go down, but both combined bus and rail number go down less than just the rail. And that makes sense because we're dropping out two stops. 
Uh, and so the, the folks, you know, the folks that are at the Ala Moana destination, and that's a large number, uh, Ala Moana Center, Kiyomoku Street, going up and down, those rail numbers will, will kind of go down a little bit, and then we will pick up some, we'll pick up riders on bus because of that. And so the whole uh, concept is that uh, without these uh, rail stops, they will have extended and expanded bus service to take people from Ala Moana Center uh, to UH. And, yeah, pretty much that's the kind of the plan. And even that will go uh, possibly into central Oahu where uh, they will be able to take people from a set point to the rail stop around Pearl Highlands as and well. And we, sh- we should probably mention that, that the Civic Center stop uh, where they're ending the line for now uh, is the last big em- employment center. You've got all the government workers there. Uh, you know, we work with the courts uh, uh, in the, in the, as well as Honolulu Hale, the city workers. Exactly. And uh, like Mayor Blangiardi said, and uh, direct, uh, Kahikina also mentioned this uh, last week, Friday, that they will, they still have the intention of going to Almoana at some point. Um, and there was also discussions of the updated uh, cost projections. It Right now, it's like nine point one three billion, but they've built in around an eight hundred thousand dollar contingency. And Kahikina said that they will uh, try to save as much as they can where they can, and um, that could possibly go towards possibly extending it to Ala Moana Center. And then obviously there was also the anticipation of some some time down the road, you know, way 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 down the road possibly connecting to UH as well. And they were talking about uh, that uh, problematic uh, parking garage for those uh, Central Oahu residents, and they can't build it there. It's expensive because it's a marshy area. Exactly. And there was a uh, Kahikina said there's a substrate below that that makes it very difficult uh, because, like you said, the marshy area. And this is uh, Lori who, uh, Kahikina, who uh, addressed some of the neighborhood boards in central Oahu and the North Shore. I explained to them why at this moment we're planning to defer. It is very expensive per stall, and it's because of the substrate material. We're not eliminating it. So I wanted to stress to them, we are not forgetting you. We have to find a better way. We want to work with our sister department, DTS. Maybe one of the council members suggested to me, why don't you look at the Pearl Highland Shopping Center? Why don't you look at Leeward Community College? That material, it's there already, right? The, the, the structures are already built. Like That's a great idea. Find a better way. But in the interim, there's going to be park and rides up there. And working with DTS, they're going to enhance their bus service to Central Oahu and the North Shore. And just wanting to recap on everything why this uh, recovery plan is so important is so that uh, the city can unlock the last remaining $750 million from the Federal Transit Administration. Uh, Without their approval, they will not release this money. Right. And so, uh, yeah, we're we're waiting to see what the FTA says. Exactly. uh, Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking to HPR's Casey Harlow. You can find his stories at (laughs) hawaiipublicradio.org. This is a conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, 
In today's Backyard Quiz, we have in mind some of the more amazing inhabitants of Hawaii's waters, reef manta rays. The evolutionary origins of these creatures go back 150 million years. In the water, they're hard to miss. The Hawaiian Encyclopedia says they look like a cross between a stealth bomber airplane and an alien life form. These gentle giants can measure up to 18 feet across. The two halves of their body look a lot like wings with with angular shapes on top that can be easily mistaken for fins when they swim close to the surface. But we've got some news for you. Reef manta rays aren't even real manta rays. These rays went through a little rebranding recently. Their genus changed from manta to mobula in 2017 based on new genetic evidence. The reef manta ray's full scientific name is Mobula alfredi. Its species name is in honor of Alfred, Duke of Edinburgh, the first member of the British royal family to visit Australia. But for today's quiz, we want to know how to say hello to manta rays using their Hawaiian name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NairitHawaii.com. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check gives us an update on a project for the Big Island that has been posed by Kamehameha Schools, a major landowner. Reporter Paula Dobbin joins us this morning. Hi, Paula. Hey, how are you doing? Good. So this project, we understand they're, they're talking about it as a culturally sensitive boutique resort. Yes, that's right. Um, they're looking at building uh, about 43 of these bungalow-style units, um, total of 150 keys, as they call it, so um, space for 150 families or individuals. And uh, in addition to the hotel, they're also looking at building a heritage center and a cultural center and moving um, some of the traffic back, as well as some of the retail locations that are there, just back away from some of the culturally sensitive spots. As you may know, this is the birthplace of King Kamehameha III, and there's also some other culturally important sites there. And so, you know, they're saying that they want to better manage the area and um, have it be a place that people can come to to really appreciate and learn about Hawaiian Native culture. And Kamehameha Schools has to tread carefully because they're a Native Hawaiian uh, organization uh, looking to make money uh, to uh, for their beneficiaries. Uh, but they've got a kind of a, uh, a tough uh, line to, to kind of tread on. Yes, I mean, there's um, there's a fair amount of local opposition to the project. Um, there's a p- petition going on online that has almost 3,000 signatures of people who um, either don't want to see the project in its entirety or want certain aspects of it changed. 
some of the major concerns are that, um, you know, this bay and the area around it is is still relatively low-key for the west side of Hawaii, that, you know, there really hasn't been overdevelopment there, um, but they're afraid that, you know, if this um, hotel is built, there's just going to be, you know, hundreds of more people using the area on a daily basis, and um, a lot of people just don't want to see that. Um, you know, they're also concerned about, you know, just paving over um, this raw land um, and putting blacktop down and how that may, may influence, you know, the temperatures in the area. There's a whole range of concerns. I mean, another one has to do with this uh, beach volleyball court that's been there for decades. And, um, you know, hundreds of kids use that um, as well as adults. And under the current plan, the volleyball court would go away. Um, people are not happy about that. They, they, Kamehameha Schools does plan to keep a canoe club there. They, they say that, you know, that type of activity is more in line with Hawaiian Native culture. So, um, you know, a variety of, of issues going on there. Um, they did have a scoping, a public scoping meeting um, in April. Now they're going to be putting together their draft environmental impact statement over the next few months. Um, their goal is to, you know, begin construction in the spring of 2023. So lots of stages to go through between now and then, permits they need to get, et cetera. But that's kind of where things stand at the moment. And Keho Bay, I mean, you know, folks there uh, don't want to see it overrun and turned into, you know, Waikiki. Uh, so, there, you know, KS has to be culturally sensitive um, to, you know, what the residents think. Yeah, and they say that, you know, they're in, they're in a great position to do that because they're all about, you know, preserving Native Hawaiian culture and, you know, having more people celebrate it and learn about it. So, you know, their perspective is, you know, change is inevitable. It's going to happen. You know, if, if it's going to happen, we are in, we're the best entity to do it because, you know, we understand what the significance of this place is and the values behind it. And, you know, we're in a position to do it right is what they say. Well, so you've got this uh, petition with all these signatures on there. Um, You know, I'm sure uh, the community is going to be, you know, watching very closely as this moves through the EIS process to make sure their uh, viewpoint is is conveyed. Definitely. Um, I don't really see this going away anytime soon. Um, You know, as as the process moves forward, there will be more opportunities for public comment and stuff like that. Um, So, I guess we'll just have to see how it unfolds. Well, all right. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, uh, be anxious to see, uh, you know, how this is tracked. But uh, thank you so much, Paula. You bet. Have a great day. We have been talking with reporter Paula Dobbin on today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. Topics we cover on the conversation often prompt our listeners to share their stories or ask additional questions after our show airs by our talkback line. Here's a voicemail we received after our live call-in show yesterday with Hawaii Representative Ed Case yesterday. This is Bruce Lehman, live in Honolulu. The flight paths over Manoa Valley are very disturbing, very noisy. We have a lot of houses here that are just single-wall construction built in what we call an amphitheater. 
which augments the sound from the airplanes that pass by daily. Ken Ed worked with Secretary of Transportation and developed a process where community input is actually taken when flight paths are identified for possibility and the ability to redirect flight paths due to community input and the rejection of having those flights over their community on a safety and noise basis. It's like the community is paying a noise tax for the airplanes that go over the flight path. Interesting, a noise tax. And here is a voicemail that we received after we aired a story about the latest efforts to deal with our aging dams and reservoirs earlier this year. Hi, my name is Christina on the island of Maui, calling up to comment on the, quote, dams for the streams. They're not really dams. They were part of the old ditch system that EMI used indentured slaves that they brought over from China and Japan. And no one ever talks about how the systems were built by slaves and are continuing to take water out of the streams. The streams are robbed of the water, they fill up with debris and growth, and then they go down and they block up the culverts that are part of the, quote, dam. There's a lot of work that needs to get done. For instance, East Maui is not a water management area that has been declared, so it's actually illegal to transport water out of the East Maui area. We need a more comprehensive discussion about the water and systems and the stream life and the taro farming here in Hawaii. Thank you. And we got this email following our Hanaho show that looked at the word aloha and what it means to the community. Aloha and good morning. I was listening to your show today about the Shaka documentary. I wanted to share a definition of aloha with you that really touched my heart. I was at a celebration of life for a dear friend, and the minister at the end gave us a definition. When you spell aloha, it stands for always love over hate, always. The definition pretty much changed me. I just wanted to share it with you. Aloha, Paul. Thank you for the feedback. If you want to share a story or ask a question, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, or you can call our talkback line 792-8217. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Carlos Amfoy, M.D., ophthalmologist and eye surgeon specializing in laser vision correction, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy. On the next Fresh Air, comedian, writer, director, and actor Stephen Merchant. He co-created the British comedy series The Office with Ricky Gervais and the show Extras. Now he has a new series, a comedy thriller called The Outlaws, about people court-ordered to do community service for low-level crimes. It co-stars Christopher Walken. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Chamber Music Hawaii's 40th season finale. Trey Sample performs Brahms' Serenade No. 1 for 10 instruments, May 21st and 23rd. Tickets at chambermusichawaii.org. 
This is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Strange weather kicks up again on Neptune. Astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence discuss climate change on the eighth planet from the sun. Here's this week's Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our skies. And as usual, we are thrilled and grateful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal. He is on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What are you toting along with yourself this week? Hey, Dave, good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Venus, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn, and they continue to be visible in our eastern skies before dawn. The moon this week is approaching its full phase, so stargazing for those faint objects is going to be very challenging indeed. Now, we have a segment favorite here that Chris is dusting off. It's been a long time since we've done weird weather on Neptune. Indeed. Astronomers using a variety of infrared instruments, including those of the Gemini North and Subaru telescopes atop Mauna Kea, have contributed to over 20 years' worth of data and discovered two very strange changes in the weather of planet Neptune. This is unusual since Neptune has long thought to have very consistent weather, including a complete lack of seasons. It's not as consistent as Hawaii's weather, is it? It's not. (laughs) And I'm guessing Neptune seriously does not have seasons because it doesn't have the tilt the Earth has? Exactly. The Earth's seasonal changes come from the fact that our planet is tilted on its axis by about 23.5 degrees. Neptune, on the other hand, has no axial tilt, and thus one would think no seasons. All right. Well, now we get to the fun part, which is the weirdness. Well, over the past 20 years, something has caused Neptune's global temperature to drop by 8 degrees. But what's even weirder than that is that the south pole of Neptune has actually warmed up by 11 degrees. Are you talking about global warming on Neptune? Climate change? Indeed, one would think so, which is strange for an ice planet in the outer solar system. Wow, and any ideas what's causing that? Well, Neptune's atmospheric chemistry is still not fully understood, so we think that it's possible that some sort of chemical interaction in the atmosphere is causing these variations. One of the issues, though, in determining the true cause is that it takes a long time to gather this data, since a year on Neptune is around 40 Earth years long. That's a lot of time at the telescope, so to speak. And that also kind of rules out that the cause of it would be those pesky critters called humans. Indeed. <laughs> it wouldn't I be that. I think them. we can rule that out entirely. <laughs> <laughs> it's another exciting one and certainly cool to get back to another fun episode of Weird Weather on Neptune. With you, Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week. And Stargazer can be found at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the new Honouliuli Middle School in East Kapolei, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. You know, there's much to learn about survival and resilience from a laboratory rat and applying it to putting Aina first. In this case, we turn our attention to a place on Hawaii Island's west side. 
you know, in focus this month is a gift of 2,400 acres to the Hawaii Community Foundation by the New Moon Foundation and the Kohala Institute. There are so many hands working on this, including the University of Hawaii and Arizona State University. So it's a shared responsibility. We talked to Alapaki Nahalea, who is stepping up to manage the Ahupua'a, a division of land under the Native Hawaiian culture. The interim CEO had just come in from a visit out in the field in this historic district. We talked to him about how to get a feel of, of what's possible in managing this modern Ahupua'a. It's called Eoli, a kind of modern living laboratory embracing Native Hawaiian values. The heart of this project is really making sure that we are returning to right relationship with our environment. And so the on-the-ground work to me is really being present in all the different pieces of the Ahupua'a and also with the other people that are doing work here, working here, like so that we build that relationship. I consider it an intimate relationship with our environment, knowing the wind patterns, the rain patterns, knowing what the wildlife is doing. And of course, there's the, always the human patterns too. How familiar are you with this Apua'a? I mean, what's your connection to the land there? Well, I've been tracking what New Moon Foundation and Koala Institute have been doing you know, for some time and just really could feel the potential of the intentions here. But I, I haven't spent a lot of time on the Ahupua'a. So since joining uh, this effort, I've moved up here. I've been here in the morning, at night, middle of the day, even early morning. So I've, I've been able to get up and down the Ahupua'a a lot more since, since coming up to Kohala. And so what are you feeling? Gosh, it's such a... I'm, I'm excited I'm very excited about what it would mean and the impact it would have to model putting Aina first and what happens when individually and collectively as a community, we put our arms around a place and we say, we're going to live in right relationship with this place. I'm excited about what will emerge from that. I'm honest, I'm also feeling the enormity of the work. We have lived on the planet in an extractive way for a long time. And so, you know, there's a lot of healing that has to go on here environmentally, there's a lot of healing has to go on in our community. And so when you engage community, you have to be ready to hold space for that work to happen. So, you know, it's a heavy responsibility, but I think it's a privilege to get to do it. I'm looking forward to the work. So what does it only mean? It literally translates to rat or mouse. It's not the characteristic that, you know, we readily hold up as you know, as an honorific, you know, it's not the lion or the eagle. Um, but that's the name of this Ahupua, right? That's the traditional name. And so one of the things that I felt strongly about is if we're going to say we put Aina first, then we choosing uh, that name as the name of our nonprofit and project uh, is a way to symbolize that. And you know, like all living things, there's there's a purpose, right? And if you hold space to understand the value that it provides in the ecosystem, you get to discover all the amazing things. And I, and I do believe, you know, mice and rats have tremendous qualities that have allowed them to, to survive and adapt around the world. So this test lab, we aim to elevate this lowly creature. I would say another way of saying that is, you know, we value all things and we, we view all things have a place. And when we're living in harmony, then each of those you know, every the creature, every part of our ecosystem can serve their purpose. And we're living in balance and harmony. So we have 2,400 acres of land. Give us a kind of bird's eye view from Malka to Mackay. You know, the Malka lands are important for forestry, capturing our rain and bringing it into 
or Aina. Historically, there's been a blend of conservation type of work there, but also uh, ranching. And I think we talk about having a 21st century Ahupua'a. It's not about removing all uses. It's about finding way, ways to have uses that are in balance with environment. So Mauka, we have ranching and forestry. We have a nice stream system that runs through Ahupua'a. Uh, we have our water system. We have the systems that actually capture all the water we use at Yole comes from Yole. So as we come down to Ahupua, um, we have these uh, underground tunnels that capture water here that we pipe down to Ahupua. We have our first area where we, we have these beautiful historic Kohala Girls School grounds and cabins that we've built more recently that we use to host visitors, learners, from edu- education guests to policymakers researchers can be housed in that space and then we, we hit right in this zone we start to get to where we have a lot more eggs incredible back nut farmer on site we're bringing back some more traditional crops like our, our low east system uh, and and then we get to this really neat historic area which was the bond estate a lot of what's built here was built by the by the Elias Bond family, and so their homestead and the historic site is here. And when we get further down to more ranching, and we get to the, the shoreline, it's really incredible ecosystem there, where our streams converge and enter this beautiful bay, where one of Klimea's canoe landing sites is still there. It's the site of an important healing heiau for Kohala. It happens to be one of the areas the community uses to access the ocean. It's a, it's a breathtaking um, coastline. It's a beautiful place to be. You know, it also had um, a historic lighthouse for some years that now it was taken down because it was in disrepair. And there's a, a light post there now, but folks still know that as a marker. Oh, um, my gosh. You know, I was there when they took that down. We yeah, went down yeah. there. Oh, that's a, oh, my gosh, that's a pretty amazing uh, uh, pua'a, an amazing site. Yes, yes, it is. Well, so you've got some pretty heavy responsibility on your shoulders. It's a big, uh, major kuleana here. Yeah, it, you know it is. But I, I, I always remind myself that I'm not alone, and that you know I'm standing on the shoulders of my own kupuna, but all the other people that have contributed to this ahupaa and this type of work. You know, in Hawaii, you know, we've been leading in this in this space for a long time, and I have a great crew here on the ground. And the community of Kohala is really amazing. I think what we're trying to do on our Ahupua'a resembles a lot of what's happening along the Kohala coast. So we're in good company. And and I have tremendous, you know, partners in this project. Hawaii Community Foundation, University of Hawaii, Arizona State University, uh, and our early partners, Hawaii Electric and Plymouth Schools. I mean, we have some some muscle behind us. So it makes it it makes it less intimidating. So what aspect will Arizona State handle? One of the beauties of Ahupua'a, right, is that it is a collective community. It's not just a land division. It's how do folks engage and share responsibilities. And so we're not starting off uh, like divvying up, this is yours, this is mine. We've really come together to talk about those things together. And, and then I hope much of what we do will actually be contributions from different entities. It's interesting because UH and ASU would traditionally be competitors, right? But we have a chance to do stuff where they're actually bringing uh, librarians from both their organizations to the table. So specifically for ASU, I think a, a lot of what they have to offer is they're, they've really been world-renowned in terms of establishing 
distance learning platforms, right, and how to bring the learning at a site into the virtual space so they can bring that expertise. They have global presence. You know, I think they're in over 150 countries. They have some presence, and so they can help us share the learnings and the, and the wisdom of our project with the world. They can accelerate that. And they bring a lot of credibility. You know, they have some of the best researchers in the world. And so, you know, there's areas where they might be primed to bring not only their academic excellence and their global presence, but perhaps some resources that they have a pipeline to here. I'm trying to remember, I think we did interview someone from Arizona who was doing some mapping of coral. Yep. They have amazing natural resource experience, a lot of strong education programming, as does the University of Hawaii. And I think University of Hawaii, you know, we we kind of take them for granted locally. They are also world-renowned in oceanography and uh, natural resource management and in many, many fields. They are considered amongst the world's best. So how did this idea get hatched? Well, the New Moon Foundation, you know, really started the effort to bring this ahupua'a to life and to engage community from this place. They started the Kohala Institute to really program that. And, you know, it's a big lift, as we just talked about. A couple of years ago, they started to realize that maybe for this ahupua'a to reach its potential and to become the vision that they had in mind, it, it might need a different ownership right? A different... Different model. To carry that weight. Yeah, different way. And to carry that weight. And so they reached out to Hawaii Community, Community Foundation to inquire if they'd be interested. If they were to gift it to them, would they take this on and carry it forward? And it was an amazing gift, right? It's, it's a remarkable uh, gift in terms of you know, the value of an entire Ahupua. But it's also an incredible responsibility and kuleana for ACF to take on. And it's not what HCF traditionally does. So I, I give them a lot of credit for you know, having a really rigorous conversation about what it would mean to take on that responsibility, agreeing to flex out of their comfort zone, and then recruiting you know, UH and ASU to partner with them to make this a reality. I mean, the, the possibilities for impact are clearly local. If we do this the right way, we have a positive impact on the Kohala community and the Hawaii Island community, but we, we could really push the envelope on the issues that our, our globe is struggling with around food security, climate change, energy security, uh, and just, you know, generically resilience. Like, so, you know, we're branding ourselves as Yole Global Resilience Hub. I think one of the reasons we're saying that is we all, you know, we're all aware of the struggles that we're facing everywhere, from climate change to war, uh, to the you know uh, political struggles, and we need to find ways to live in balance with our environment, get along as community, and work towards more well-being for the earth and for us. That was Alapaki Nahalia, a University of Hawaii Regent and interim CEO of the New Living Laboratory Iole on Hawaii Island on Kohala Coast. It will focus on energy and food security as well as place-based learning. Today's Backyard Quiz, we checked out a critter that's regarded as the third largest in the sea after whales and many sharks. 
Reef manta rays, like their evolutionary cousins, the sharks, they are boneless, with the skeleton made entirely of cartilage. Unlike them, though, they are never known to be aggressive and pose no threat to swimmers and divers. The largest of these creatures found in our waters, the reef manta ray, is known by the Latin name Mobula alfredi. They feed on plankton, inhaling them through their large rectangular mouth. They're incredibly agile, and even the largest can hurdle their two-ton bodies out of the water in a spectacular display. If you're lucky enough to see one in local waters, you're not likely to forget your encounter with the hahalua, the answer to today's backyard quiz. We had no winners, uh, so we stumped you on that one. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Theater Center. Author Deepak Chopra discusses consciousness in his talk, The Future of Well-Being, May 18th, 6.30 p.m. Meet and Greet. Tickets available at hawaiitheater.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, what exactly is college for? The monetary returns are really important, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. And what are we missing when we pay so much attention to the elite schools at the top of the pyramid? You're going to have more success if somebody's spending $100,000 on you than if they're spending $8,000 on you. The first in a special series on higher ed. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sutter Health Kahi Mohala, offering behavioral health care, recognizing Mental Health Month this month to raise awareness of the importance of mental health. Sutter Health Kahi Mohala. Okay, that does it for us today. Tomorrow we plan to get a Red Hill update from the State Department of Health. Got some feedback? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling us. Color Talkback Line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, and you can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.